0: I also want to begin by just saying uh, happy Memorial Day weekend. I hope you guys are excited for this extra weekend, or this extra day, a longer week. It's not an extra weekend. That'd be pretty cool if we could somehow manage extra weekends somewhere along the way. Uh, But it's a longer weekend for us. 95% of businesses will be closed tomorrow, which is pretty awesome. And as a result, it gives people this extended weekend where you see increased travel. I think I saw as I was reading up on it that I think, uh, what was it, 37 million Americans Are planning on traveling, which was a sixty percent increase from last year, and I think we all know why, and and it speaks to the fact that we seem to have hit this turning point uh, where we seem to be kind of climbing out of and coming out of this pandemic, and people are ready, Uh, people are excited, and so a lot of folks are traveling or looking to take advantage of this extra day off. But but let's be honest when we think about. Memorial Day weekend, on some level, you don't just think about the the extra day and the potential trip, you also think about the cookout, right? I mean, anybody else planning on grilling out at some point in the next day or two? Just me? Come on, come on. 56% of Americans will barbecue uh, at some point over Memorial Day weekend. Now, I have discovered through the course of my life that barbecue means different things to different people. When I lived in California, I was actually texting a few buddies about this last night, Uh, When I lived in California, you discovered that they don't have a lot of the things that you have here in Texas. Like they didn't have Tex-Mex. And that was very discouraging for me for those three years. made a very difficult three years for me to go without Tex-Mex. But they also didn't have barbecue the way that I'm used to barbecue. And I remember one weekend a friend of mine saying, hey, why don't you come over? I'm going to barbecue tomorrow. And I was so excited. I was like, no way, man, I will be there. And so I show up and I've got visions of like brisket and ribs and barbecue sauce. And I show up and he hands me grilled chicken. I was like, this is not barbecue. And he's like, no, that's barbecue. I was like, this is not barbecue. He's like, that is barbecue. And we were going back and forth before we realized that barbecue means something completely different to Texans, right? He had no idea of the glory that is Texas barbecue. So I don't know about that 56% if it's what we envision as barbecue, but people are going to be grilling this weekend. $1.5 billion will be spent on meat and seafood for Memorial Day. $1.5 billion billion dollars. Here's my favorite statistic that I came across. Yeah, this is even better. Okay, between Memorial Day and Labor Day, for the next three months, approximately three months, there will be 818 hot dogs eaten every second. Not literally, okay, but, but the equivalent of 818 hot dogs, more than 7 billion hot dogs will be consumed over the next three months. Thank you, Joey Chestnut, a great American hero, right, who has really just inspired a nation. Uh, we love to feast, don't we, right? We, we love that, not just as Americans, though, especially as Americans, but as people, right? Even feasting is biblical. If you look up the concept of feasting uh, in Britannica.com, this is paraphrasing, that we, we establish these feasts to commemorate certain seasons, Certain moments, oftentimes they can be religious, they can be communal, they can be uh, socio-political, whatever it is, but we, we set aside these feasting celebrations to remember certain things. And, and I think with all that we've acknowledged we are able to benefit from over the next few days, be it an extra day off or some travel or some form of a cookout, it's all there to commemorate and to truly remember. Right at its core, Memorial Day is to honor the lives of those who have fought and died to secure the very freedoms that we are able to enjoy. And so the first thing I want to do today is to at least acknowledge the many wonderful men and women and families who have helped secure those freedoms and have been either willing to offer that ultimate sacrifice or have in fact offered that ultimate sacrifice. And so let me just ask for those that are here, let me offer kind of a comprehensive list. If anyone is here in our congregation today who has served, or a family member, if you or a family member uh, has served or is serving in the U.S. Armed Forces and military and has been willing to put their lives on the line to offer that sort of a sacrifice, would you please stand just so we can recognize and acknowledge you today? There we go, we got several. <laughs> Thank you. And while you're standing, while you're standing, just out of curiosity, remain standing. Uh, or if you did stand, did anybody uh, have a family member or a relative give their life? I, I know not everyone has, but is it mean, okay? And so we do have some folks that we truly want to honor the memory. Thank you. You all can be seated. And, and the applause are, are a small gesture of appreciation and gratitude for those who have been willing to offer uh, that ultimate price to give us the freedoms that we so uh, frequently enjoy and can easily take for granted. But I also want us to not just acknowledge and recognize what Memorial Day is about. I think it's an opportunity for us to remember some of the lessons uh, that Memorial Day can point us to. Uh, One in particular that I want to call to our attention this morning. So Memorial Day has been a holiday since 1971, an official national holiday since 1971. But its origins go as far back as the Civil War. And in the years that followed the Civil War, uh, it was commonplace in different communities and cities and towns. For folks to go out and dedicate a day, oftentimes in the spring, and decorate the graves of the fallen soldiers. It was initially referred to as Decoration Day as a result. And so it was, it was kind of in the aftermath of the Civil War that this practice uh, became known. And as American history evolved, it became something that people did not just to recognize the, the lives that were lost in the Civil War, but all American wars and conflicts, and that's how we now practice it today. But if you think back to its origins, that's kind of what I want us to do is is kind of take yourself back to those first few years after the Civil War. Most historians would estimate that there are around 620,000 deaths as a result of the uh, Civil War. Now, about 10 years ago, there was a historian by the name of J. uh, David Hacker who did some advanced demographic studies looking at the census reports from 1850 to 1880 and made a, a declaration, or I guess wrote a proposal that we may have even underestimated the amount of deaths and by at least 20%, and his suggestion is that it's closer to 750,000 lives that were lost as a result of the Civil War. So think about that. If you were to put that in modern terms, and we had a similar conflict today in our country, that would be the equivalent of going through Civil War and losing 7.5 million American lives. Think about how that would feel in the grief that we would be carrying as a nation. That's what birthed Memorial Day, right? That, that grieving process of conflict and lost life, trying to find a way to move forward. And so when I was thinking about the origins of Memorial Day, it, it kind of reminded me of a very important lesson that I'm sure those who celebrated this or at least went through some form of memorializing it in the early years were very familiar with. Which is obvious that foreign enemies are something to be concerned about. They can level a, a, a degree of harm and conflict that would cause us to be cautious and fearful. But one of the lessons we see when we really reflect upon the origins of this is that when we fight with each other, the destruction is catastrophic. And that's an important lesson, I think, especially for our nation today. Growing hostility, growing divisions. And it's not just a lesson for a nation. At right? any time you, you war with one another, the results are often much more destructive. Could be within a church, could be within a school, could be within your own home. Right? Memorial Day should be compel us to strive for a greater sense of humility, civility, unity. I think we all long for that. We all, we all long for that sort of unity, that sort of community, but we often look for it and find it in poor substitutes, right? Cheaper versions of it. We'll, we'll, we'll find unity based on our race, our age, our gender, our orientation, our political affiliation, all these different things, but they're poor substitutes for what can truly unite us. What we see in the scriptures time and time again is the only thing that transcends all these cultural and uh, uh, human, uh, human uh, elements and barriers, the only thing that truly unites us is Jesus. And that's what we need. That, that's what we're here to foster, is to get the humility that he provides to practice the civility that is only found in loving your neighbor and to find unity in Jesus more than anything else. And so with that being said, let us take some time to go to the Lord in prayer and to ask for him to provide these things. Yes, prayers of gratitude for those who have given a sacrifice for the freedoms we enjoy, but also prayers of gratitude for the ultimate sacrifice that was offered by Christ and allows us to truly unite in an everlasting unity. Let's pray together and ask God to lead us. Father in heaven, we are grateful for so many um, sacrifices that have allowed us to be here today and to enjoy the many freedoms that we all benefit from and we pray that you would bless the families and loved ones and those who have offered their life and a line of service for this country that you would continue to comfort them and encourage them help them know the level of appreciation that so many feel for them but Father, also that in our gratitude today, we would once again turn to the cross and be reminded of the unity that is only found in Jesus, the way in which you supply every need. And so help us to call ourselves back to you and to give our hearts to you and to surrender to you. Father, as we open up your word and we open up these scriptures, God, may it speak to us once again that we would find that you are a great shepherd that supplies every need. Need only in you can we fully be satisfied, Father. So reveal these things to us accordingly. And we pray this all in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen. All right, grab your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter two. We're going to finish off our letter to the church of Pergamum today. Uh, we've been walking through this letter. We started last week and, and kind of addressed the dominant theme and, or the dominant question here for this church is the question of loyalty. We saw that they were doing a great job of standing up to the external conflicts, that even in the face of death, even in the threat of martyrdom, they were holding on to the name of Jesus. But internally, among one another, some were holding to the teachings of Balaam, some were holding to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. They had found themselves divided by following after these other teachings, and it was pulling them apart. And so it was a question of loyalty. Now, that question of loyalty is the same theme that you find in these other letters. We saw it to the church of Ephesus. Will you remain loyal like you did to me at first? We saw it to the church in Smyrna. Will you be loyal even in the face of affliction? So this theme continues. And then today, what we'll get to see at the conclusion of this letter is once again a reminder of a reward. For those who are loyal, those who hold tightly to Jesus, this is what is in store. And so we're going to take a look at chapter 2, verse 17 and take a closer look at the reward that is mentioned to the church of Pergamum. Let's follow along in chapter 2, verse 17. It says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Let me read it again. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. (coughs) Excuse me. So, this is a very interesting reward that is offered. You compare it to the two previous rewards that were mentioned to Ephesus and Smyrna. Ephesus was told, You overcome, you're victorious, you get to share in the tree of life. Then to the church in Smyrna, You overcome, you're victorious, you won't be harmed by the second death. Really interesting rewards that were offered to both those churches, but a little bit more intuitive, because you can have this theme of life and death that's pretty well apparent in those two. But now you get to Pergamum, and you get references to hidden manna and white stones with names, and it's all very interesting. And so a quick disclaimer, as you kind of got a reference from the children's message, we don't really know what much of this means. Uh, there are a lot of theories. It's really hard to say anything definitively. But even with these different proposals and suggestions that are out there, I do believe there is a very clear message and picture that's being painted for us with this reward that we'll get to kind of towards the end. And so here's how I want to do it. Uh, There are three distinct things that are referenced in terms of a reward. A new name, a white stone, and hidden manna. And I want to go in that order. I want to go in reverse order, mainly because there's more uh, to draw from in the Scriptures and referencing and understanding manna. Uh, And so I want to start in reverse and, and go through name, white stone, and then manna. So when you look at these uh, references, the, white, uh, the new name is, is one of those things that, again, we don't have a clear description or definitive understanding of what it means, but it likely means one of two things. That is either the divine name, right? And there's some biblical support of, as to why it would be the divine name. You think about the sacredness that is God's name. And you think about the way in which that name is revealed in the Old Testament with with Moses at the burning bush. I am the I am. This name that we now refer to as Yahweh, but Jews were, were so reverent of this name they were fearful to even mention it. Right, But it was the sacred name that was constantly revealed and pointed to, to God's chosen people. You also think about the name of Jesus and the teaching in the New Testament that this is the name that is above every name and that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And so there is reasonable biblical support to say that this name that we will be given will be the divine name that will ultimately be exalted on that glorious day, right? Upon the resurrection. And so it could be the divine name. It could also be a new name for the believer, for the redeemed, for the resurrected. And this also seems to have some biblical support and seems to be a rational conclusion to also consider. Think about 1 Corinthians 15 and the transformation into glory that awaits the believer. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the perishable being raised imperishable. What is sown in weakness will be raised in glory. And there's this vivid description of these new bodies that we will be given upon this glorious resurrection. Doesn't it make sense that in the same way that we are transformed physically into the imperishable, that we would be given a new name? I'll be honest, I had never really considered that until this week. Right? I' never really stopped to think about that in heaven, I may not be known as Jeremiah. Right? Like I'd never really given that consideration, but it really makes sense, because Jeremiah is an earthly name that was given to me by my parents in honor of my grandfather. Right? And so you think about this, this transformation, and you think about what names mean in a biblical construct, they are very significant. We choose names based on what we think sounds good, what we like, a family member. But but biblically, names were very intentional and they spoke to the identity and the nature of that person, right? So to go through this transformation and to receive a new name that better describes and points to the nature of that resurrection, the nature of that glory and identity makes a lot of sense. Also biblically, when you named something, that was an act of demonstrating who is superior, right? It, It demonstrated a level of authority. If you could name something, you had authority over that thing. So think about Genesis. And Adam gets to name all the animals. That was a a tangible expression of Adam's dominion and rule over creation. And so doesn't it make sense that when we're transformed into glory with these new bodies, our heavenly father would give us a new name that speaks to our identity, our new nature, and his sovereignty over us. I mean, I don't know if that's what it's going to be, but if it is, that sounds awesome, right? Either way, if it's the divine name that we finally get to truly know and to speak and declare, or if it's a new name that he confers upon us as our heavenly father, what a beautiful reward. Now, this name, according to Revelation two seventeen, is written on a white stone. Again, we don't have a lot of clarity in terms of what this means definitively, a lot of different theories. White stone could be a demonstration of some form of membership. Uh, A white stone uh, was a common Jewish jewel that was often held with a certain level of value. could be a symbol of victory. Uh, We know the color white often meant joy or victory in Greek culture. It was a symbol of holiness in Hebraic culture. There are a lot of different theories. A couple of the ones that to me seemed the most interesting. uh, One was that it would be an amulet. And the reason a lot of people think it's an amulet is because In Greek culture, it was common to see these amulets that would have an image on the exterior that people could see, and on the reverse side that was hidden was often a a secret name or a mysterious name that was only known to the person that had the amulet. And so some scholars would say it seems like that's the imagery that's being drawn upon here, and so that could be an option. Uh, The other one that you heard uh, Kevin reference to the children that I also liked was that a, a lot of times there were these voting stones that were used. And a white stone was a vote of acquittal, and a black stone was a vote of condemnation. So you think about standing before the judgment throne room of Christ, and you or, and you think about being giving this vote of acquittal, this vote of innocence, because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it could be something correlating to this system of judgment. Who knows? there's really no way to know definitively. What we do know is that it's a precious possession that secures for those who have endured and overcome and have been found victorious. It's kind of one of those things where I'm like, I don't know what it is, but I know I want one. Right, you ever been there, right? You've seen that before? I don't know exactly, what, but I want one. That's kind of what I would say about the white stone with a new name. Now, one of these proposed suggestions that I also found interesting kind of helps transition into the discussion on manna. Right, so, so there is a theory out there that given the context of Revelation 2.17, that this white stone with a new name on it serves as an invitation to this, this meal where the manna will be served, right? You, you think about the wedding banquet of the lamb, this, this imagery of feasting that is often accompanying uh, the book of Revelation and even Jesus' parables, that maybe this, this white stone is what gains you entrance into that Meal into that occasion. Right? So that, that could be another theory. But in order for us to give consideration to that and understand it a little bit more holistically, let, we need to dive into this concept of manna. Okay? And and whenever we begin to look at hidden manna and the, the biblical references to it, we need to go back to the Old Testament scriptures. If you remember when we started this series, before we even looked at the letter to the Church of Ephesus, just the opening series, we said one of the reasons the book of Revelation is often so confusing is because it is filled with these illusions that we don't typically pick up on. And, and a good majority of them are Old Testament illusions, And so a lot of it is just an indictment that we are not as familiar with Jewish culture and the Old Testament culture that would have really been easy to draw from for some of these original readers of this letter to Revelation. And so let's, let's kind of dive back into some of our Jewish history here by better understanding manna and the message that was associated with manna, not just in the Old Testament, but then how Jesus gives greater context to it as well. So to do that, we need to go to Exodus 16. Now, none of this is gonna be up there. I'm paraphrasing the majority of it. If you wanna follow along, you can turn there and just kind of follow along. Uh, but I'm not reading it word for word. So in Exodus chapter 16, we have the people of God that have been brought up out of Egypt and they're wandering in the wilderness. And I, I need you to stick with me through this context because we'll, this will ultimately help us land the plane, but we need to really kind of get this, this picture painted a little bit. So in Exodus 16, the people of God have been brought up out of Egypt, and it's the 15th day of the second month of wandering through the wilderness, and what is happening? The people are grumbling, because that's what they do, man. I mean, they are good at grumbling, and, and we can all identify with that. And so what is their frustration at this point in time? Exodus 16:3 tells us, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt— there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So they're grumbling. They're literally starving to death and they're frustrated at God. Now before we get to the rest of the story, let me just ask you, how many of you are here, don't raise your hand, but how many of you are here today frustrated with God? As we all grumble at some point or another. We all find ourselves in those moments, in those seasons where we don't understand God's plan. We don't understand what he's doing. We don't understand how he's going to lead us forward. And we begin to question his plan and we begin to question his sovereignty, his provision, his goodness, whatever it is. And so if that's you, the story of manna can help once again serve as a reminder of how we navigate those moments where we're frustrated with God and what it is that we're supposed to do with those frustrations, right? So the people here are grumbling because they're starving to death. Do they starve to death? No, right? What continues to happen? The Lord says to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And he gives detailed instructions on how they're supposed to gather this bread and partake of this bread. But he ultimately he says, at twilight you will eat meat in the morning, or at twilight you will eat meat and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. So he makes this declaration. And in the evening, quail came and they were able to eat the quail that covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. And when they saw it, they said, what is it? The actual Hebrew for that phrase, what is it, is pronounced man Right, like that, that's literally where the word comes from. And what is it? And it's described as this bread that tasted like wafers of honey. So it was really delicious. Now, as the story progresses, another little interesting tidbit is that Moses actually gets some of this manna, puts it in a jar, and puts it with the Ark of the Covenant to serve as evidence and a testimony to future generations. This is how God provided for our need. This is the actual manna. You're going to hear stories of this. Here it is. He supplies our every need. And so this is the story of manna and its provision, but what really helps us learn an important lesson is looking at the instructions that God provided his people when he made this provision of manna. So what does he tell them? He says, here's this bread, it's going to be supplied for you, but when you go out, only gather what you need for the day. And those that didn't listen, right, those that gathered more and acquired more. The next day they woke up and everything that they had stored and gathered had rotted and had maggots in it. Right? So so it was a literal test. Gather only what you need for today. Now, I don't know about you, but do you realize how hard that would have been? Like, put yourself in that situation. They are starving. Starving to death. And all of a sudden, there's this Bread that's on the ground that tastes like honey and they're supposed to show restraint. Do you think you would have been able to show restraint? Let me tell you what the human impulse looks like in this situation. That's like a piñata party. You know that moment where the piñata breaks and candy falls and all the kids are like, it's mine. Like no kid goes and goes, I just need one or two just for the day. You know, you guys have the rest, right? That's how I would have been. I would have been out there, I would have like, manna, you know, and like grabbing all of it. That's the impulse. And so the lesson with manna was to rely upon God's provision that he would supply their daily bread. Sound familiar? Think about the level of trust you had to have in that moment. Think about the level of dependency that God would meet your need again tomorrow. See, our impulse is to acquire and acquire and store and store and to plan and plan and to worry about tomorrow. And time and time again, God says, focus on me just today. I'll meet your needs. Are you able to do that? Do you have that level of trust? Do you operate in that level of dependency. That's the lesson of manna, to truly trust in God supplying our every need. Now, as The Jewish history progresses. The word manna carries on this connotation of heavenly bread, bread from above. You've seen reference in the Psalms and in the prophecies. And as Jewish literature continues to evolve and progress, uh, they begin to equate it to the food of the Messianic age, right? That the Messiah will come back and this will be the food of the righteous, that the food of the the Messian, or the people of the generation of the Messianic age will have the same food of those in the age of the wilderness, and so manna kind of carries this messianic connotation for Jews. And so enter Jesus. And Jesus actually speaks to this miracle of manna as well. Now to understand what he says about it, you got to go to John chapter 6. Again, none of this is going to be up there. If you want to kind of follow along, you can. I'm just going to paraphrase and summarize. We get to John chapter 6, and this is a really interesting uh, event. Right? The beginning of John chapter 6, has one of the most notable miracles in all of Jesus's ministry. And we can say that because it's one of the few miracles that is in every single gospel, the feeding of the 5,000. right, so Jesus is teaching. There's this large crowd that's gathered. The disciples are like, what are we gonna do? It's getting late. We need to feed them. Jesus is like, I don't know, go see what you got. They bring back some fish, some loaves, multiply, boom. Everyone's fed, 12 baskets left over. Pretty incredible. All right, so that miracle takes place. Evening comes. Disciples get on a boat. They begin to head out across the lake. Jesus doesn't get in the boat with them. They go out on the lake. Middle of the night, storm comes. Jesus shows up on the water, walks on water. was like, oh my gosh, Jesus is walking on the water. Then they all get to the other side of the lake. This is all Jeremiah's version of the scripture. It's a little bit different in John. Get to the other side of the lake. Next day, crowd wakes up. The crowd that had just received this miracle feeding. And they're looking for Jesus. They're like, where is he? Because they knew that he didn't get in the boat. They knew he hadn't gotten in the boat with the disciples, so they were confused, but they see another boat. They get in the boats, so they go across the lake, and they show up and they see Jesus. And it like blows their mind, but they can't piece it together. Like, when, when did you get here? And, and it's just, I, I just love to picture that because he doesn't tell them, like he doesn't tell them about the miracle. It's just this mystery of Jesus. And, and when they show up, Jesus sets the tone to everything that he's about to say to them. And so in 6, verse 26, Jesus says, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. All right, so, so notice this. This is really important. This sets the tone. Why were they searching for Jesus? According to Jesus, you're searching for me not because of the power that you saw and the miracle that was performed. You're searching for me because you ate and you had your fill. You're looking for food that spoils and fades rather than food that leads to everlasting life. Now that's a really powerful assessment. Let me ask you the question, why do you search for Jesus? Why do you follow him? So that you can have your fill so he can meet your needs or because you've seen the power of God in his life and the promise of life everlasting why do you follow Jesus Jesus assesses the crowd very quickly you're you're following you're seeking for the wrong reasons and so the crowd responds and they say okay well tell us the works that God requires and Jesus very simply says well you got to believe in the one that he sent And listen to how they respond to that. This is really interesting. They say, well, give us a sign that we may see and believe you. This is after he just fed 5,000 people. Give us a sign that we can see and believe you. What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. For as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So what the people are doing there is comparing Jesus to Moses. Right? Hey, that was cool. You gave us bread yesterday. Pretty awesome. You know what Moses did? He gave bread from heaven day after day. Give us that kind of sign. So they make a comparison to the manna, and Jesus quickly corrects them. He says, Moses didn't give you this bread. God gives you the true bread from heaven that gives life to the world. And they respond, sir, always give us this bread. And you have this kind of like repeat of Jesus at the well with the woman, right? It's the same sort of conversation. Jesus at the well with the woman is like, hey, I'm thirsty. Can you give me a drink? She goes, hey, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. You shouldn't be asking me for a drink. He's like, man, if you knew who was asking for a drink, you'd be asking him for a drink because it goes to living water. She's like, where do I get this living water? Same sort of thing, right? He's sitting there and he's like, y'all, you think Moses had something good. You should be asking for life The bread that gives life to the world. Where do we get this life to the world? And this is where Jesus gives the ultimate declaration. What does he say? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. What an incredible declaration. Yeah, that manna was amazing. You want to know the, the bread of life that gives life to the world? It's me. Come to me, you'll never hunger. Come to me, you'll never thirst. How do the people respond? They grumble. They question him. How can you say that you're sent from heaven? You're Joseph's son. We know you. They doubt and they question. And so Jesus reiterates the one who believes has eternal life, for I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. <laughs> but here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from, whoa- from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. What an incredible declaration What an incredible advancement of this miracle of manna and God's provision of meeting every need. Jesus comes in and says, yeah, I know exactly what took place with the manna. I know exactly what Moses provided. And as great as it was, all those folks still died. But you come and follow me. You'll never hunger. You'll never thirst. You will live forever. You are searching for the wrong things. You're searching for food that will spoil And fade. You need to seek that which will give you everlasting life. And this is Jesus' declaration and interpretation of the manna and his place within it. It's really remarkable. So now let's move back to Pergamum, okay, with all that context, okay? So now you get back to Pergamum, and what do you see? You see some similarities, okay? The, The people in the wilderness. Were just, they just needed food to eat. And their impulse was to store and store and store to not trust in God's provision. They were focused on the wrong things. The people feeding the 5,000, right? Why were they seeking Jesus? Man, they, they sought him because they ate and they had their fill. They were looking for the wrong things. What about Pergamum? What is the challenge here? What we see with this reward is a description, it would seem, of a beautiful meal. Maybe the feasts. Maybe this wedding banquet of the Lamb where you get this new name, this white stone in the hidden manna. This is your reward. And what is happening in this letter is an incredible contrast. Because what had plagued the church in Pergamum? What was their issue? What was their problem? And they were holding tight to the teachings of Balaam. They were holding tight to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And what was the result? They were partaking in food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. And as we described it last week, they were engaging in these sacrificial meals that led to the cultic practice of prostitution. And he says, man, you're you're sitting down for the wrong meal. You're chasing the wrong thing. What you have engaged in is a poor substitute for the meal that awaits those that are victorious. What a powerful image. And he points back to this mystery, right? That's why it's hidden. This mystery that was Jesus, this mystery that was the gospel, this this food of everlasting life awaits those who will be victorious. What you have engaged in right now is a poor substitute for what your soul really longs for. And I think that's the lesson. I think that's the lesson for us, is that we all have this human tendency to settle for cheaper and poor substitutes that we think will satisfy us, but ultimately don't. Right? It's, it's, a, it's a cheaper version. It's a poor expression of what the real thing should be. When I was in junior high, I went to uh, New York with my dad. My dad took me and a friend to to new york had a chance to go visit cooperstown hang out in new york city a little bit pretty awesome trip and uh, i'll never forget this is really cool at one point we were in the streets of new york and this guy came up to us on the streets. y'all he had rolex watches it was awesome and i'm not even a watch guy but like i saw that rolex and i was like that's awesome and you know what's even cooler he sold them to us for like 20 bucks and I snagged that thing. I was like, did y'all know you could get a Rolex in New York for $20? It's Pretty awesome. So I had one. I have no idea how long that thing lasted. Not long, right? Because it wasn't a real Rolex. But, but this is a small, innocent illustration of that human tendency. Man, we are drawn to knockoff versions, cheap substitutes. And we fill our lives with them. What are you filling your life with? what are you feasting on? Let's think about it for a moment, shall we? Think about the the cravings that we have, the lusts that we have, what we hunger and we thirst for that we will so easily fill our life with. Sometimes it's substances, right? You you can go and you can look at some of the latest research that would say I think around 15 million Americans struggle with alcohol use disorder, 38% of Adults struggle with illicit drug use, to crave them, thirst for them, the instant gratification that it may fill. Our lust for pleasure in relationships and some form of sexual immorality that is one of the leading causes for divorces. Our lust for greed, money. All right, we've referenced this before, I think the guy's name, I have it here somewhere, I think his name was Michael Horton, he was a Harvard Business, Michael Norton, Harvard Business School professor, did research back in 2018, right, he surveyed 2,000 people who had a net worth of a million dollars or more, many of whom had well over a million dollars, and he asked them two questions, on a scale of one to ten, how happy are you? And then how much more money would it take to get to a ten? And every single one, no matter how wealthy they were, said they needed at least two to three times more money. Because we just need, we hunger, and we thirst for all these things that we think will fill us and satisfy. They're poor substitutes for what our soul really longs for. We lust for power. All right? Politics is a good example of this right now. now. I'm not, I'm not wading into that subject in great detail today. I've done that before. You guys can go listen to the message. But it's an example, right? Because right now, we we frame our ideologies through political lenses, right? Political parties have to give us ideologies of what's right and wrong, what we believe is just and unjust, and how we should function. And so we we kind of put those lenses on, and it begins to shape our views, our worldviews. It used to be that we lived in society where our faith would often influence our political affiliation, but a lot of times it's in reverse nowadays. Let me give you an example. came across this this week. Right? About 25%, more or less, this is from, let me try to reference it. I left it in my other notes. It's from, uh, it's a, not Pew Research, but it's another Religious Institute survey that said 25% of white evangelical Christians would believe that violence is going to be necessary to save our country. Okay, now here's my point. There's nothing in the gospel that encourages towards violence. And if we're ever to fight for a kingdom, it's with weapons of spiritual nature and it's for a heavenly kingdom. And yet one out of four white evangelicals would say, yeah, I gotta be ready to fight to save our country. It's influencing us. And the concern there is like if one out of four white evangelical Christians were sitting there going, I don't believe Jesus raised from the dead, you better believe I would say something about it. And yet what's happened is that we've got these frameworks now of what we view our world by and what we see as right and wrong, and we need that power. We need that power to determine right and wrong. We don't want to entrust it to anyone else. And the reason we're so apt to do that is because it's the same sin from the garden to know and experience and determine good and evil for ourselves. We lust for power. You know, part of the thing that we see in our cultural climate today, again, is what I referenced at the beginning this call for unity. And we try to unite ourselves in all these different groups because the heart wants to belong to something, we want community. And so we look for it wherever we can. Could be a political party, could be race, age, gender, whatever it is, right? We, we find some way to foster community, and yet we are all increasingly lonely. Loneliness is an epidemic in today's world because everything that we're seeking to find community is a poor substitute for community. Now, loneliness is increasing, and one of the main reasons is well-documented because of social media, Technology, it's really interesting, right? I mean, because it gives the allure. It's, the, it's what all these poor substitutes do, right? It's the shiny allure of, oh, this, this is great. And so we can use social media and technology right now and we can create community in all these unique ways we never could before. And we connect with people across the world and we can say things and share photos and look at likes and all this other stuff. And it makes us depressed because it doesn't change the fact that no matter how you're engaging technologically, all you're really doing is this by yourself, even to the neglect of the people that are around you. It's a poor substitute, and the church has to be increasingly on guard against it because the pandemic normalized it. And I, let me just go ahead and share with you, I feel conflicted on how to move forward because I think virtual church has a place, right? I think it does. I fully recognize that for many of us, we, we needed it, will need it. We still have concerns about our own health or somebody else in our family and their health or we, we're homebound or whatever and we need that. But let's not pretend that across our country there are a lot of people right now that are engaging in virtual church because it's convenient. And let me just be very clear, it is a poor substitute for church. And it will create ever-increasing disconnectivity And the more you get disconnected, the more likely you are to wander. Which is why I've been saying for a year, if not longer, since we've been doing this, we need to gather. That's what we're created for. The point is, y'all, we could go on and on and on. Substances, pleasure, greed, money, politics, community, power. We are constantly inclined towards cheaper substitutes. And few of them, none of them, really satisfy like Jesus. He's the only thing that truly satisfies the very needs of our soul. And so the question we need to all ask ourselves this morning is, what are you feasting on? Which meal have you sat down to engage in and partake in? And really the question underneath it is, whose voice are you listening to? Because this is an age-old story, church. It's an age-old story for when God created everything in all of its beauty, and all of its glory. He planted these trees that produced fruit of all kinds, and he took man and woman, and he said, take and eat. That was the command, that was the promise, that was the voice. But the serpent slithered in close, and he pointed to a poor substitute, different fruit, a fruit that That he said was better. A fruit that he said would be what we really wanted. And he said take and eat. And we did. It changed everything. And it brought in this brokenness. It brought in this yearning. It brought in this longing. But God in his great love for us. Refused to leave us in that place. And so he left the comforts of heaven. Took on flesh and dwelt among us. And sat with his most close trusted disciples at that final meal, at that final Passover, right before the cross, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and he took the bread, and he took the cup, and he offered a new covenant and said, take and eat. And for those that do, we find the promise of a food that we can have forever, where we will never grow hunger, we will never grow thirsty, and it points to that ultimate day, that ultimate resurrection, that ultimate wedding banquet and the wedding supper of the Lamb where we get to be resurrected in glory. And once again, hear our King say, take and eat. And that's what awaits those who are victorious. So whose voice are you listening to, church? Let us listen to the one who offers this hidden manna, this white stone With a new name, let us listen to the King of kings and the Lord of lords and sit down at the meal that awaits those who will be found victorious. Let's celebrate that victory that awaits those who trust and cling to Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that so often we feast on the wrong things. Things that lead us astray, things that serve as cheaper substitutes for what only you can provide. And so, Father, we are grateful that you are a God who prepares a meal before us, even in the presence of our enemies, that you have offered this invitation that we can taste and see that you are good We can celebrate in this hidden manna the promise of everlasting transformation, the promise of everlasting life. God, may that be what we cling to more than anything else. And let us trust in you each and every day to meet our every need. God, help us to reorient our thoughts and our minds to understand that we don't need to chase the earthly fills of life. Father, the everlasting promise of the risen one who declares he is the bread of life. So, Father, we run to Jesus. We cling to Jesus. Help us to loosen our grip on all these earthly things and hold tightly to him and celebrate this victory that awaits those who are found under his grace and who will forever exalt his name. We love you, Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.